As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to Rates and Barrels, presented by Tops. Check out Tops Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Tops baseball cards. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. It is Wednesday, October 27th, one game of the World Series in the books, and it was a win for Atlanta on the road. So we're going to dig into how they did it and the implications going forward in the series because there were quite a bit of interesting things that happened that will impact the rest of this series. You know, Framber Valdez didn't have it just catching too much of the plate and Atlanta hitters were punishing him throughout the start. Jorge Soler hit the first leadoff home run in world series history. I was surprised that hadn't happened before when they, when they mentioned that during the broadcast. Yeah. And like, uh, from Jason Stark's column, apparently, uh, from Bravaldi's has not allowed a lead, like a leadoff home run. Hmm. Naturally. So, so yeah, naturally he'd be the one that breaks the record. Yeah. Right. So, <laughs> Uh, well done all around. That was it. Was one of those um, emphatic. Uh, you know, you're you're settling into your seat, and you're kind of just like, you know, you're kind of like, oh, Jorge Soler is leading off. Uh, I wonder if that's like a matchups thing. Are they going to take him out of the game later? Like, why? You know, that's kind of a little bit weird. He's not the biggest OBP guy. You know, he's not. Uh, you know, he's not fast. You know, it seems like a weird. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. That is not a good feeling when you're a fan of a team and you're at a game and they give up a leadoff home run or a like big you're not probably first not even inning. In your seat, actually. <laughs> Haven't even taken a sip of your beer yet and you're down one nothing. Like that's a horrible feeling. Yeah, and it didn't even really end there. Didn't they? They gave up another run with Albies uh, getting on on that uh, infield single and getting around. So it was tough from right, right from the beginning for them. Yeah, and I think when you look back at how the Astros had the bases loaded when the bottom of the first inning ended, I mean, there was an opportunity for them to really change the the flow of the game right away. They didn't do it. Uh, the big story, obviously, is Charlie Morton getting hurt, got hit by a comebacker, suffered a broken fibula, so he is going to miss the rest of the postseason. I guess the good long-term news is he will be healthy for 2022, but this put Atlanta in a terrible spot because they had to rely even more on their bullpen in a situation where they shouldn't have had to rely on the bullpen much at all. A.J. Minter came in, though, 
two and two thirds innings, 43 pitches, three Ks, give up one run, scattered three hits. I mean, that's a phenomenal performance for a guy that works much more often in a short relief role. I mean, that, that's a huge development for them getting that sort of bridge from Morton to their other relievers in game one. He's done this uh, sort of thing before. I think I remember the bullpen game against the Dodgers uh, either this year or last year. Uh, Mentor went uh, two or I, mean, I think he went two plus. So um, he, you know, he has that kind of length in him uh, and he did used to be a starting pitcher like most relievers, but uh, uh, it was uh, pretty amazing to see him pump in 96 all the way to the, uh, to the last out that he got. Uh, he was clutch. That was a really, that was the big performance of the night. I think, um, other than Morton getting three outs on the broken leg, which uh, blew my mind. I mean, these guys are amazing, and Charlie Morton is just an absolute legend. I, uh, I, it's tough on the Braves, though. You know, one way they can make it not meaning meaningful is uh, win uh, win a quick one. Yeah, yeah. Shorten up the series, and uh, you'll be fine. <laughs> I think it's easier said than done, of course. And you know, looking through, Luke Jackson pitched well. Tyler Matzik, Astros got a run against Matzik. I mean, seeing all three of the lefties, Minter, Matzik, and Smith in game one, maybe that's a, a silver lining if you're Houston. And given how bad the start was for Framber Valdez, things could have been much worse for the Houston bullpen. They got two and a third scoreless innings with five Ks from Jake Odorizzi. So that reduced a little bit of wear and tear on some of their better relievers, right? We didn't see Stayed Presley, away we didn't from, see Graveman, yeah. we didn't see Javier, all of those guys. We didn't see Grinky. So you have all those options. And everyone's, still everyone's available tomorrow for them, too. I mean, even though Yimi Garcia, Phil Maton, and Ryan Stanek all threw about 20 pitches, like they're available tomorrow. I think the only one who's not available tomorrow, I mean, I think it would be tough for AJ Minter to come back tomorrow. Yeah. If he comes back tomorrow, you uh, you already have like an out or two in the inning, and there's a lefty up, and you're hoping he doesn't even go three guys. You know, you're hoping he just finishes out the inning, I feel like. Um, I think they'd rather stay away from him tonight. Um, and I think, you know, the, those two things are meaningful because, uh, you know, Minter's, you know, one of their best three relievers. So if he's not available tonight um, and Morton's not available going forward, that, you know, those are significant uh, setbacks for the Braves. Um, they, they need their starting pitcher to go deep tonight um, in order to, you know, you know, deal with the fact that they may not have any Minter. Yeah. So we'll get to game two here in just a few minutes, but a few opportunities for Houston to kind of claw their way back into this game. They just couldn't do it. Atlanta's defense held up really well again uh, overall. There were a couple couple moments where you thought maybe things were, were going to break, but it was really more of a bend and not break. So performance on that side came through when they had to. Uh, thinking about replacing Charlie Morton on the roster, since they know he's not coming back for the series, they can bring somebody else in. Tuki Toussaint, Josh Tomlin, Spencer Strider, I think were among the names that I saw mm. as possible options. Who would you go with to replace Morton on the Atlanta roster? I bet they go with Tuki just because uh, he's been around longer. But I think Strider might actually be the move uh, mm. because Strider has some length. And then also uh, just uh, nobody's seen him, you know. I mean, you can develop a scouting report. I think one thing that's happening in today's game is that the scouting reports on, you know, debuts and rookies are, are more advanced than they used to be. That's partially because of track man, partially because uh, teams have, you know, huge, huge uh, scouting departments and the ability to invest this sort of uh, time into making sure they know about everybody on the way up. Uh, but um, I still think 
that's different than like sort of standing in the box against a guy, which nobody on these Astros would have stood against stood in a, against Spencer Strider. Yeah, I think with Strider, the element of surprise could be huge. You, you can get the the better scouting report on on Tukey. You can see what opposing teams have done in their mm-hmm. approach against him that has worked, and maybe you can build something a little more effective based on that. Uh, Kyle Muller also suggested by Todd in the live stream if he's been throwing. I think that's the other question people have is, you know, what are the pitchers who are not on the roster but on the taxi squad doing to stay fresh? How do they how do they pace out their throw days to remain in a position to come in and possibly offer length? I mean, you mentioned Strider being more stretched out. Is he throwing long bullpens every few days? I mean, I imagine each team has a group of relievers they're trying to keep stretched out. And they got a bunch of or a bunch of starters that are, are working like starters, and they got a few relievers that are just ready to come in and and gobble up an inning or two at a time. But it's one of those things that is definitely more of a mystery because we don't get to see it. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think I would assume something like, um, you know, uh, three or four days before the series starts, they throw uh, like a sort of a simulated game that's almost like a full game, right? Because then you could bring them in at any time in the first sort of three, four, five days of the new series, and they'd still kind of be stretched out. So you'd kind of want, like, you kind of want to get the work in as soon as possible uh, so that you'd be rested by the time they need you. Yeah. Like, you you wouldn't want to do anything during the series because then, oh man, he just threw yesterday. Right. Well, beyond like a regular throw day sort of thing, just a, 15 pitches, whatever, like something simple like that, just to, and you may save that. You may may even save that sort of 15 pitch throw day for a day in which uh, a starter went long. Right. Right. You could kind of see what happened in the game and then throw late in the evening. Ian Anderson went seven a day quick, you know, Muller go throw, go throw (laughs) 20 pitches or whatever. Turn the lights on at the backyard. Go throw. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if it's quite like that, but uh, right. it's fun to imagine what it could be like. Uh, any other takeaways for you from from game one? I mean, I think it's... Um, well, it's, I do know something from the Arizona Fall League that's somewhat relevant, is that I think that the um, I think that the taxi squad, the sort of guys that could be available, are somewhere together. Uh, Shea Langliers did not show up at the Arizona Fall League because uh, he is... Uh, basically the emergency catcher if people get hurt. Hmm. So uh, he didn't want to be playing in Arizona, be harder to get to or get hurt in Arizona. Um, so he's somewhere with the rest of the taxi squad guys. So you, if you have a catcher, yeah, you know, you have someone to throw to. So I'm sure they're all in a hotel somewhere in Houston or Atlanta, you know, kind of, you know, getting their directives from, from the coaching staff. I was wondering uh, last night, I know Jason Castro entered the game as a replacement for Maldonado. There was a situation, it was lefty-lefty, it must have been in the ninth inning against Will Smith, where they let Castro hit, and they were down four. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, I mean, you might as well just play for the tie, and if, if you if you do tie it up, like, go to your emergency catcher. Go to someone on your bench that can, can handle it, right? Because at least then you're not taking a bad lefty-lefty mass- matchup at a time where you just need runs. You're desperately in need of runs, and it doesn't matter if you've already used your other catcher. Someone else can do the job. Identifying that player I know is tricky and in playoff games, especially where you're trying to get every optimal matchup possible. You may have already burnt the backup catcher as a pinch hitter. That's entirely possible. I don't think that was the case last night necessarily. 
um, unless Oledbis Diaz is that player for Houston. But that struck me as a little bit of an odd sort of thing where it's like, hey, you should be pushing all your chips in right now. You're down four. Yeah, you know, teams are... uh... I think that's one of the more conservative spots on even the most progressive teams is, you know, uh, identifying a third catcher and not touching them, leaving the last guy on the bench will be the third catcher, that sort of deal. Um, You know, uh, nobody really wants, uh, because I think you just get hurt. The the player gets hurt a lot. Like if you put, who would you put back there? Like who could it be? Like you put Yuli Gurriel back there because he maybe caught like 20 years ago. You know what I mean, and then you hurt Yuli Gurriel because you, you forgot how to catch, you know, and like, uh, you know, then you've hurt a guy going forward. And how much did you help your chances in the game? And I don't know. I, I mean, I, I remember being like, eh, Castro's the guy in this moment. Yeah, it, it was the bottom of the ninth. Any other situation, you can't do it. But I think in that exact situation, the very remote possibility of of tying the game and not just you know, winning it outright potentially in the bottom of the ninth. If mm-hmm. you do even rally in that unlikely event, you'd take your chances with you know, Marwin Gonzalez or whoever it was on your bench who is put on catcher's gear, even as a joke lasts and say, well, hey, we're, we're just happy to be here. So let's just try to find a way to mm-hmm. get it done. Let's take a look ahead to game two. It's going to be. Well, I did want to say one thing about uh, game one. Um, you know, I, I've pro- I've talked about this a little bit on the podcast before, but uh, so Framber Valdez uh, and Jose Urquidy had something in common in their bad starts, which is they were both uh, about two ticks up, you know, mm-hmm. a tick and a half to two ticks up in terms of velocity. And so uh, both those guys, uh, you know, their location scores are better than their stuff scores or their command is better than their stuff. Um, and so it reminded me of a thing that John Small said a long time ago, which was, uh, that he thought he was the best uh, Braves guy out of the top of the big three uh, in the postseason because he was more of a stuff guy. He didn't have the command of Glavin and, and, and Maddox. And so when he got to the postseason, uh, he was able to throw harder and he was a guy who relied on his stuff anyway. So it was just stuff plus. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so, you know, I, he thought that Maddox and Glavin had a little bit more adjustments to make in the postseason because if they are going to throw harder then the ball is going to move differently and if you saw last night uh valdez uh his curveball moved three inches less horizontally than his league than his average this year and his sinker dropped three inches less than it did during the regular season Hmm. and so if you're, you're that three inches is pretty significant for a pitch i mean that's a that's a big difference and so, uh, you know, I think he was just struggling to figure out where he could put the ball with this new movement. You know, I think he did want to throw 96. I mean, that's good. You want to throw 96, but uh, you also need to hit your spots. So I think that's a lesson for Akita tonight. I don't know um, whether the idea is just to, like, throw free and easy and don't worry about the velo or to make adjustments quicker when you start noticing that you're missing your spot by three inches because the the cha- the movement was different. So then you have to you have to set your sights quicker. You have to uh, change your game plan. That's what I was yelling about. Sort of like maybe they should have done the front door uh, front door curveballs, uh, front door breaking balls uh, in in Arquiti's last start to just you know get one that landed in the zone. You know, um, but in any case, I'm I'm sort of really interested to see what and this could be our transition get on the segways i'm really interested to see urquidy uh 
his his command and his velocity tonight. I was just thinking about it from the perspective of the Adam Duvall home run, where it was a down and in curveball that he just teed up. It was in the zone. It was it was a hittable pitch for sure. But if you have less Probably movement, should have been you more expect, back foot. And yeah, should have been zone. should have been like in more on his hands and much harder to drive that pitch three, than it three actually inches, was. Maybe? Three inches I, in, maybe. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, I, I just saw that pitch location. I was like, okay, the the first pitch that he threw to to Solaire that got hit out, or it was the third pitch of the sequence. But that fastball was a like garbage fastball. You just missed that was, the spot. That was a that BP was a, that was a huge miss. That was yeah. like a, that wasn't a three inch thing. But, but the, there were some the, three inch misses where he, you know he didn't get the call, got into bad counts, or or gave up the you know gave up a homer because of it. Yeah, yeah, I think that Duval home run might be a really good example of. of the cost of, of missing a few inches of movement for uh, for from Valdez in that start in game one. But yeah, game two, Max Freed against Jose Urquidy. It's an 809 first pitch still on Fox. Whole series is on Fox. You don't have to jump around from channel to channel. So good for those of you who just turn the TV fine on and TBS. then turn it off. Yeah, fine. fine t- it's not like March Madness when you find court TV uh, for the, the one time <laughs> or true TV for the one time every year. I get this channel. What other packages do I have to add to get this one game that I'm going to watch for eight minutes while I shuffle around from channel to channel? It really depends right. on if, if your team is playing on that channel or not. Cable's free. last dying gasp. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. I don't, I don't feel any better off than I did 10 years ago with what no, I'm paying no, to we watch have like things. 8 million streaming things. I, yeah. I think we might be paying for Disney Plus twice. We just don't. We can't find it. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm getting a burrito and a piece of pizza and some French fries and a milkshake and a cheeseburger. And instead they're each $30 of, each. <laughs> right. It's, it's just over, overindulging and overpaying along the way. But Freed versus Rikidi. A matchup that I would say you know favors Atlanta. You and I like Jose Urquidy. We've discussed him a lot over the the life of this podcast. I thought it was a little bit interesting that they chose to go with Urquidy over Garcia in this spot. I think part of the concern was prolonged rest again for Urquidy. They thought maybe rust was a factor and and why he struggled in that last start that he made against the Red Sox. And I think the other variable here is outfield defense. You know, having to play with Jordan in the outfield in game three in Atlanta changes a little bit about which pitcher you might want to. But I think it, it's probably more like 80-20 rust rest factor probably kicking in to push Urquidy out there for two as opposed to Luis Garcia. Yeah, and I guess, you know, they mentioned the fact that Garcia was throwing I-7 in this last start. So um, I guess they're they're wanting to give him uh, more rest so that maybe they can get another game with nine-sevens out there, right? I picked the Astros uh, just, 
it was one of those things where I was like, man, I I love Jose Urquidy. My name has been attached to Jose Urquidy this year. I might as well just go all in. <laughs> like if if I pick the Braves and Urquidy beats them tonight, then that would just be sad. <laughs> <You know? laughs> the Zips odds are fifty one forty nine. Well, Absolutely. that's interesting because the money line today is minus 115 for Houston, minus 105 for Atlanta. So that's very similar. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's about as close as you get to pick them because I think that's all home field advantage, right? That's about, I think home field advantage is like sort of 51, 52%. In fact, it might be Braves favored if it was on a neutral site. Yeah, okay. I could I could level with that. So So how is it gonna be different for Kitty this time out versus the last time we saw him against the Red Sox? Um, you know, there there are some there's some uh some some small um uh Luis Garcia had the biggest stuff uh, differences uh home and away. Urquidy has a little bit of that. His stuff has been better at home. Um uh, I, I think there's just the knowledge that his stuff is playing differently that he, you know, like there's just the knowledge of, of put uh, like what happened last time he pitched at this sort of amped level, which, you know, there isn't any evidence statistically that, that playoff experience matters. Um, and I think that's just because there's a ton of noise, but in terms of like what it's like to, to, to be a player in it and to be a coach in it, I have to think that it does matter to some extent. And this is going to be the time that it matters because Jose or came out there and was like, Whoa, like, you know, I'm throwing harder and the pitches aren't doing what they normally do. And what do I do this time? He's going to be like, Oh crap. I'm throwing harder and the pitches aren't doing what they normally do. Like at least we've been thinking about this for the last week. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, I'm not such a numbers geek that, like, I say, "Oh, the numbers say that playoff experience doesn't matter, so nothing different is going to happen tonight." I don't think that's true either. Like, we are human beings. He spent a week thinking about what happened last time out. Sure, sure, and I think it, it could be something on the margins. It could be something where the effect of being on the road with less experience is greater than being at home. Right? That there's a there's a greater negative impact of being on the road as a young player. Then there is a positive impact from being at home. Like, yeah, I think there's there's part of that. You know, Urquidy is a big fly ball pitcher. They also didn't want to have uh, Alvarez out there, you know, defending uh, when when Urquidy's throwing. And then Garcia has just thrown more this postseason. So I think that speaks to what you're talking about. Like he's just like been in he's been in the Lions Den more. But all that being said, the appearance game three of the ALCS was Urquidy's fifth career postseason appearance on the road so it, it, i don't know like how long does it take to get comfortable in those spots it, i think it's question. less that like people were yelling at him and stuff and more that like you know he was just like what do i do with this movement right just in, in this velo i would be more inclined to buy that sort of explanation for his struggles than just the road as a, yeah, right. as a sort of vague explanation uh for freed Thinking about this Houston lineup, the damage they do, I'm wondering what's his best path to be successful against this group of hitters. I think he has to be able to uh, place his fastball, his curveball and slider in the bottom of the zone. So I think about Bregman and Correa are both, and actually Altuve, all three of those guys are highball hitters. 
and they are high ball uh, right-handed hitters that basically spit on on low pitches. Uh, Altuve is uh, slightly different because he can. He and Otani had the biggest difference between their highest home run and their lowest difference, their lowest home run, which is kind of amazing if you think of Altuve's size compared to Otani's. <laughs> Otani is somebody that you'd figure would have that large of a difference. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because he's just so tall and big. But Altuve had the second largest difference, and that means he was hitting something at his eyeballs and something at his toes <laughs> to keep up with Otani. But in any case, uh, Altuve, Altuve might be the hero of game two, uh, but uh, Freed, in order to silence the rest of the lineup, has to be able to basically place that slider and curveball in the zone um, uh, to frustrate uh, Bregman and uh, Correa, who will mostly uh, spit on those pitches and not and and not, and not swing at them. Yeah, you got to get those called strikes that. Houston hitters simply don't want to swing at and avoiding mistakes. with The fastball is probably a, a rubric for some success uh, for any pitcher against any team. But I think with Freed specifically, that's the pitch where hitters can do the most damage. When that fastball leaks out over the plate, he gets hit and he can get hit pretty hard. So I think that's the, the other thing I'm looking for from him is that he's locating the fastball with kind of pinpoint command. If he's doing that, it could be a long night for Houston. And for, for Bregman and Korea, they're actually pretty similar hitters. For him, that like if he has to throw the fastball high, he better do it out actually like out over the plate, like sort of uh, uh, outside corner and high, because Bregman and Korea both have uh, have have created this swing that's crazy that um, up and in is a strength for them. Did you see that uh, Korea homer in the White Sox game? I did. I'm trying to remember it. Rodon. Yeah, it was up and in. And it made me like look up his heat map, and I was like, "Holy crap, Correa like wallops up and in." I don't know. Once he identifies that's coming, he there's some some mechanical thing where he just he gets his hand through real quick and just tomahawks it. Um, and uh, so uh, you know, Freed misses with the fastball up and in. Uh, that's a that's going to be tough for him. So he the the big thing for him, I think, is uh, maybe a combo of. Um, high fastballs uh, away and then maybe some more curveballs to those guys uh, because you could he could throw a curveball like a, a backdoor curveball that was ball 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 strike you know and I think that might play off of a, a high fastball away right if everything's like high and away uh, is this this is uh this freed's freed's okay. fastball chart I'm just and we're kinda... looking at the catcher right yeah see that's that's a little problematic for me yeah, right. You, Correa and saying, up, are... up and away is where you want it, and he's he's usually in on the hands and in over the plate a little too much too. Correa and Bregman can hit those. Yeah, so that that's uh you know he's gonna have to go away from his strengths a little bit. Uh, thank you for that heat map. That was great. Yeah. Well, hey, I was, uh, I was thinking on the fly for once. <laughs> but uh, so he'll have to go away from his strengths a little bit. Um, he'll have to be really careful about his four seam. I think. Um, and uh, have to place those those breaking balls in the zone against the lefties. I don't know, man. That uh, that slider just running away from lefties is going to be really rough. Uh, I would expect uh, Brantley and Jordan Alvarez to get some walks, but uh, not necessarily hit the ball hard. Yeah, as great as Freed has been throughout the second half and for most of the postseason, this could be the most difficult test he's faced yet because the Astros, of course, had the best offense in the league throughout the season. So 
There and you go. better is it? No, not not better righties than uh, than Dodgers. Dodgers were uh, were lacking the lefties a little bit. Yeah, I mean it. It's comparable. Like I, I just look at this Houston team, and I I know I know they're not going to be quiet offensively for long. Even the fact they were scratching out runs against some of the Braves' lefty relievers, to me, that's a that's the silver lining. That's the thing that you should be a little contact. bit excited about. Yeah, they were putting pressure on them. I mean that's that's huge, and that's going to be the constant test on Atlanta's defense, which is much improved with all the shifting. It, it's light years ahead of where it was earlier in the season, but the outfield defense in particular, I think that's going to come back to bite Atlanta at some point in this series. It has to. Yeah. It's just, you know, in today's game, like, you know, sometimes there's just fewer balls in play. I mean, that's, there's definitely teams that are kind of making a bet on the fact that there's fewer balls in play so we can get away with worse defenders out there. Absolutely. As James points out in the live stream, sounds like a tough matchup for free, not just because the Astros are so good, but because his strengths play into their strengths. Yeah, I, I would agree with that assessment. I think there's a little bit of that going on with Freed, but should be an exciting game too. any other thoughts on your mind here as we uh, we think about how this one might play out. No, I, you know, I just um, the one thing that's interesting is that Orkidi is a change up first guy. I mean, he's brought his breaking balls along. Uh, and interestingly enough, uh, Orkidi, uh, Garcia, uh, Javier, uh, and maybe even McCullers um, throw basically that seam-shifted wake slider that I wrote about with the Dodgers. They throw um, what's called a sweeper. It's a seam-shifted wake uh, slider that drops a little bit less than you'd expect. I think it looks a little bit like a curveball, and then it, it has more horizontal movement than, than drop. Um, and it, and it doesn't go as hard. It's, it's usually a mid eighties pitch. Um, but, uh, as far as they've engineered, uh, the breaking balls for Orkiti, the changeup is his best pitch. And it's just, uh, an interesting thing. I think we've gone away from the changeup as a sport because, uh, there are too many times that, um, it just allows contact. It's, you know, if you throw it, you know, a two strike changeup, I think a lot of times hitters are expecting it. And a lot of what the changeup does for you is um, be unexpected. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm, it's interesting to me that the sport has kind of gone away from it. Um, you know, like who who else in this, who else in this entire series has a plus changeup? I mean, Granke has that power change. Yeah, that's probably, that's that's probably the only the one that comes list. to mind for me right now. Um, so interesting to see that uh uh ron washington has been interesting to me uh todd rankenmeyer he, he's he's um that that was interesting but also uh some of ron washington's sends have been really interesting um and one thing that he said when they interviewed him that i thought was interesting was that um he's not worried about the next hitter he doesn't think you know, I should stop this guy because Freeman is up next. He tries to only appraise the situation as it is. That so, makes sense. You know, I think that, yeah, it's like mental clutter, right? It's like, right. Cause you would, you would almost certainly do the math wrong in your head. Like anyone would. Like, yeah, oh, wait, Freeman's like, oh, well, up Freeman instead will, of Solaire. Yeah. Uh, like, Freeman will hit him in. Of course, <laughs> Freeman will get the RBI and then yeah. Freeman strikes out and you're like, ah, dang it. It's just, yeah much more sound approach to just make the decision based on the actual play as it's developing, as opposed to thinking about the next thing in this instance. 
Yeah, and I was really impressed with Ron Washington. Also got interviewed. They asked him about the defensive changes they made. Mike Petriello had a great uh, a great article about how they changed um, in the middle of the season. Um, and he said that the Alex Antopoulos and the, the brass came to him and said, you know, we want to do more shifting. What do you think? Um, and he's like, uh, he's, he, they said, well, what if we do it in a week or something? And you, you're prepared for it. And he goes, why do it in a week? We should do it right now. And then in a week from now, we'll have all the kinks out. We can have another meeting and we can, you know, talk about it then. What, I liked a lot of things about that. One is just do it, you know. Two is um, after a week, they brought the concerns of the players back to the front office and to the, to the manager and to the people who wanted to implement it. So that shows a little bit of a two-way street. It's like, we're not just going to implement this and shove it down your throat. You know, we're going to, we're going to try it because we want to win. And we want to ask, we ask you, yeah, you're in, okay, you're in. And then we want to ask you, what's your opinion? What do you think so far? And you have to be careful about like implementing every single thing because they'll remember, oh, that one time we shifted and the ball went through. And so I hate, the sh-. you know what I mean? Like, oh yeah, there have uh, been plenty of pitchers that have talked about that. But um, I think that uh, players are, are smart enough to, to realize that this is about the sum of things. And, uh, um, you know, they may, uh, they may just have feedback on, on a much smaller level, which is like, you know, give me the, the power to take a step or two in a direction based on my intuition. Um, and then, uh, then I'm cool with these charts. You know what I mean? Um, and we've seen that uh, a step or two in the right direction can be huge. And that's why, you know, there's been some charts out there about like, oh, who, you know, who, um, who shifts the most against righties and lefties and all this. And a lot of people are like, why don't we shift more against righties? One, one reason is the first baseman has to cover first. Um, so you just have a little bit less flexibility there. And then two, I think is that there are some teams that are doing little micro shifts. They're doing smaller things that don't show up in Savant as a quote unquote shift of the capital S. Um, and that's something we saw, even with the Braves, where Dansby Swanson was, you know, took two steps towards the bag and was standing in a place that he never stood in 2020. You know, uh, that's that's like uh, that's as, as important as the big, you know, let's put the second baseman in right field shift. Yeah, I was thinking about the the right-handed shifts too. Maybe there's some way, at least with some pitchers, to have pitchers just cover first base in those. Yes, yes, yes. I've asked pitchers about this. <laughs> How much do they hate it? uh they 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 didn't like it yeah i kind of figured they'd hate that they didn't like it but um uh i think it might work and and i think it'd be maybe one thing to uh ask some of the older pitchers although granky would love it i think i think he always wanted to be a shortstop right so yeah Yeah. hell yeah i can make it over there (laughs) i'll I'll start running this before the pitch even is out of my hand I'll, i'll be halfway there but some of those like relievers that have like crazy fall off the mound stuff, you know, they like they'd have to like pick themselves up and then run over. There. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would not be uh, ideal. So predictions for game two? Do you think the Astros uh, draw level? I mean, it has to kind of play out that way, unless it's going to be four in a row if our series predictions are, are going to come to fruition. Uh, I'm saying that the offense breaks out. Yeah, like a like a six seven run performance from Houston's offense. I think so. And even if it's not all against Freed, like, you know, two or three against Freed, you know, uh, push them out. No, uh, no Minter, I don't think. No, uh, there's, so, there's no way Minter's pitching today. Right? I don't think so. So, like, so if you push Freed out in the, you know, fourth or fifth, then, you know, here comes 
Jackson or you know somebody else before you even get to to Smith and Matzek, right? I mean, you're not going to get four innings from Smith and Matzek. So uh, there's a couple opportunities there for that for them to. Uh, <laughs> Vincent wants an update on the keg. Um, I I did some work on it last night. Uh, I think I pushed past halfway. You passed uh, the halfway. <laughs> I I really need Derek to come over. Uh, what so, beer do you think I can drink? I don't know, but it's uh, it's more than just me alone. Well, uh, yes, I've, that's true. I've, I've invited uh, friends over for Saturday night as well. Uh, Got to go re up on the ice today. Still, the good news is it's still cold. So the, the, the outside, outside is still cold, and the and the beer is still cold. So my wife uh, had one last night. It's um, it's like uh, one of those almost like cryo uh, dust uh, IPAs where it's got a little bit of a what I call a vegetable burn, where they've taken the hops and like distilled it down to like a powder and put it in. Um, and uh, it's um, she was like, "I'm not helping you." <laughs> I like that beer. I actually thought that beer was pretty pretty accessible for people who don't even like IPAs as much, just because it's a little more on the juicy side. Yeah, I mean it's it, it is juicy, but it has a little bit. It's a it's the double dry hopped one. I don't know if you had the double high dry hopped one, but yeah, yeah, so that was the one I had the crowler of. I I, yeah. I loved it, but my palate's not a normal palate necessarily. No, um, I mean my wife just uh, she, I mean I, I it's a little unpredictable for me. She likes hazies, but not all of them. So just not she was she wasn't gonna have this one. And and James is right. Uh, uh, she's gonna she's gonna tap the watch pretty soon. I think Sunday. I think I think Sunday is your day where you're gonna be asked to remove the keg from the yard. It does. Uh, made, it has made me think about uh, the desert island uh, construct of like, what's your desert island beer? Because I have been drinking one beer now, one beer uh, <laughs> for a week. Uh, not not quite a week. Sort of five days. And uh, I like it. I still like it. But um, I could see a, a sunset coming yeah. where I have opened my beer fridge to get the ice out and looked at my beer and been like, yeah, I have other beer. What uh, what's the temperature on this island? I think that might be a factor. It might just be Corona if it's super hot. I appreciate Vincent chiming in to ask the the hard hitting questions today because uh, I think everyone's on on keg watch. They want to know if Eno can finish half a keg by himself between now and and Sunday, or at least with the help of a few friends uh, along the way, because that's a that's a tall order. Uh, if you don't have a subscription to the Athletic, this is a great time to get one with all the great playoff coverage up right now. Get thirty three percent off at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. More coverage on the Mets ongoing pursuit of a new GM. Matt Arnold withdrew his name from consideration before we started recording today. I thought that might actually work, but nope, 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 nope. He knows. An executive saw a a tweet stream that I was having where people were uh, defending Sandy and and Bryn and saying uh, that wasn't a big deal and, uh, you know, I I had some sort of vendetta or I wanted to cancel Sandy. Like, none of those things are true. Uh, but an executive saw that and one I hadn't talked to yet and was like, oh, by the way, I uh, rejected an offer from the Mets for an executive position because of the Sandy Brin uh, situation. <laughs> yeah. So ah. there you have it. So more on that story to come. Many, many other things. Oh, and, and, and you know, these stands are going to come in there and be like, well, you know, permission. Listen, permission is a thing. But if you're offering director of baseball operations to a GM. Permission, yeah. you're 
like it's supposed you're supposed to get permission. It's a little different if you're trying to get Stearns, right? Because Stearns is a president of baseball operations, right? So you're offering a president of baseball operations and Milwaukee will be like, he's not even getting a raise or a, an up, a, a, a promotion. So no, you can't talk to him. But like if you call and say, well, what about your GM? They're supposed to say, yes, you can talk to him. And so the wording today out of Adam McAlvey was that he withdrew his name from consideration. So I don't, you know, you have to do some mental gymnastics to, to be like, oh, that's just the brewer's. I don't think so. I think that's just the person saying, Matt Arnold saying, stop calling me. I'm going to take a different yeah. job later. Like, I'm going to, I have a good job now. I'm going to get a better job than the one you're offering me when the next group of vacancies comes around. And that's- honestly, I think like in a year, you know, I just think people are like, well, you know, Sandy's only going to be there for a year and you can fire Bryn. Yeah, but people don't want, like, part of the job is firing. Like, part of the job is firing. But, People don't want to already know they have to fire people. You know what yeah, I mean? You want to show up. Wanna... You want to show up the first week and start firing people at your new job, right? So then you, that means you got to work with Sandy and Bryn for a, a year before you can get rid of them, and they may obfuscate what you're trying to do, or you, they just it'd just be awkward. And you're just be anybody who takes a job is going to at least be like, oh, for a year it's going to be super awkward. Yeah, not ideal. So you know, if you got a good thing going, keep the good thing. Choose a better thing when the time comes around. And the list is so long now, dude. I mean, you could try and be like, well, Theo's doing this. and But the thing is, the list of people who said no is Bendix, uh, Josh Burns, Brandon Gomes, dude. Brandon Gomes was playing like three years ago. Uh, uh, Theo. I mean, we Arnold. We're, we're, we're at like eight people who said no. Billy Bean. Billy Bean. And yeah, you could be like, well, Billy, the children. Yes, every one of them said something because it's not, it's rude. Nobody wants to come out there and be like, you know, this is exactly, no one's ever going to be like, this is exactly publicly. This is exactly why I'm not taking this job. Like, no one would be like, uh, like people told me all the time, I'm not taking a job with the Angels, right? I've never taken a job with the Angels because of Artie Moreno. Yeah, I've heard that from like three, four people. I heard that from one person who literally declined a GM interview, and it would have been his first GM job. And he said no because of Artie Moreno. Have you ever heard someone say that publicly? No, of course not. Why would you ever say that publicly? So why would you ever say publicly, no, I didn't take the job because Sandy's there? That'd be crazy. Nobody does that. So you have to read between the lines a little bit. And right now, with like eight rejections. So, and then somebody's going to, I know someone's going to come in and be like, oh, look who they got in the end. They must like, you know, are, aren't you going to say they're wrong? Somebody wanted to work with Sandy. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Their 10th guy, really, really, the 10th option. Yeah. This is like, um, what, when Dan Duquette got the Orioles job a few years back? That was the other job. That was, that was the job no one wanted at the time. It just yeah. bounced around and bounced around and bounced around. And finally, it was, okay, that's a, Dan Duquette will work with Peter Angelos. That's a situation, too. Mm-hmm. I think there might be some uh, some evidence that ownership has eased up off of it. Like, for example, uh, I think ownership was uh, kind of anti uh, – uh, they've even said some stuff where, like, they're anti-international signings uh, for a long time. And remember the Orioles, like, didn't make international signings for a long yeah. time? Yeah, for years they had no presence there. 
And then Elias got went in and like, you know, started changing that. So there's some stepping off there. But I think that like, you know, Perryman Asian, you know, he's he's fine. In fact, I like when some of the stuff he's doing the Angels right now. They just signed Connor Hinchcliffe from uh, Driveline. And um, uh, uh, um, I don't know if it's public, but another they're, they're, they've hired a couple names where I was like, OK, they're getting serious about pitch design. So I like that. But I also think that Perry Manasian wasn't really on anyone's like short list and was a bit of a surprise pick. Um, and I think Artie Moreno is part of that. Totally makes sense. You know, he is the ultimate boss uh, in that organization as the owner. We are going to go. We are back tomorrow at 1130 a.m. Eastern. Give us a follow on Twitter. He's at, you know, Saris. I am at Derek Van Riper. You should follow Britt, even though she's not here today, at Britt underscore Giroli. And be sure to barrel up on the like button if you're watching us on YouTube. That is going to do it for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Thursday. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.